They were pulled out of the wild, taken from the wild, put into a captive situation, and were in a terrible situation, tied to a tree, you know, as many chimpanzees are today, um, or in you know a terrible cage, a tiny cage, and um, you know just in incredibly horrible circumstances. And due to that, these incredible people today that that you know have founded and run these sanctuaries. They felt the need to create a safe space, spaces where they could live in as natural an environment as possible while still being cared for. That was the voice of my next guest, the new director of the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance, Kelly O'Meara. Kelly takes over the reins of the Alliance, better known as PASA, a growing collection of 23 sanctuaries scattered across 13 sub-Saharan African countries at an unbelievable time one where wild great apes are facing a dire future. Kelly's mandate? Support PASA's members as a rising flood of rescued primates inundates their sanctuaries, all the while trying to fill a growing great ape conservation void. PASA's challenge halt decades of losing. Losing forest habitats, losing populations, and losing in our effort to educate politicians, the public, and decision makers. But most critically, We're losing apes by the thousands every year. We caught up with Kelly fresh off her first trip to Africa for PASA to hear her vision for the future of this vital primate organization. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and welcome to Talking Apes, the podcast dedicated to exploring the world of apes and primates. Our guests are at the forefront of science, conservation, and the survival of apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you, and from nonprofit Globio. You can support us on our new website at talkingapes.org. And now my conversation with Kelly O'Meara. Hi, Kelly, and welcome to Talking Apes. It's really great to finally uh, tie you down. You've been traveling, and I've been traveling, and so it's uh, it's wonderful to have you on and as part of our launching of our second season. So welcome. Yes, thanks, Jerry. Good to see you and meet you. And uh, I guess over camera. <laughs> exactly. We we actually had a conversation not too long ago before we both hit the road. Um, in the intro, I gave a little bit of your background, and I'd love it if you could just give us a sense of how you got to this place in life. You have kind of an, a more interesting journey than most people do to come to an executive director position. Yes. Um, well, I, I think I'll start off by saying, you know, I do not come from a primate background. Um, so this is is new to me and coming into PASA. But what I what I have um, had a, a career of experience with is in the nonprofit world. I started with uh, HSI, Humane Society International. I was with them for 22 years, long time. Um, but I started with them at, at their at their infancy, um, where there was only four of us. And um, anyone who knows Humane Society International today will know that it's a significantly larger organization today with hundreds of people and, um, around the world. But my work with HSI was entirely global um, from the first day I started. So my, my work internationally brought me around the world, um, meeting with various people in, in all regions of the world. I worked in Asia and Latin America, um, Africa, Eastern Europe, and working with uh, both governments and local organizations to try and come up with humane solutions to to dealing with street dog issues um, and, and working with, uh, again, governments and local organizations to try to develop what those programs would be. It gave me such an incredible scope um, on, a, on a global scale of um, animal welfare 
And of course, I've always, yeah, my passion exceeds just dogs. It obviously goes into all, you know, all areas of, of animals. And so uh, when the executive position became available um, for uh, PASA, it just seemed a, it seemed an interesting fit for me because of the nonprofit experience I'd had of working from a small organization, which became a large organization. And of course, PASA is a relatively small organization. And bringing that experience into, um, you know, a, 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 an organization of what we were an organization of nine, nine people are actual um, employees within the organization. But the network is incredible within PASA, um, both the experts and the volunteers, truly incredible. Um, and that is something I, I'm very happy to be back working with um, our people on the ground. Obviously, we have 23 member sanctuaries in 13 countries and working with people that are dealing with those daily issues on the ground day in and day out and working with them to try and um, help find ways to support them. That was going to be one of the things I wanted you to, to talk about for just a, a minute. For for a lot of people who are listening, they probably won't be familiar with PASA. It's, it's not a World Wildlife Fund. It's not a you know one of the bigger conservation type groups. Um, and, and conservation isn't strictly what PASA does. But maybe you could give us a sense about who PASA is, what it stands for, and and you mentioned members and who, who those members are. Sure. Yes, of course. So PASA stands for Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance, and um, it is now about a 20-year-old organization that uh, started very small um, in the, I think it was year 2000, technically, it, it started. Um, and uh, it really just was an organization born from sanctuaries within Africa facing similar challenges and similar issues, realizing that there were a number of them working individually in different countries and that being united um, and, and being connected would benefit them all. It would, it would give them an opportunity to have that exchange as, as a family of sorts and that they um, could work with one another to, to try and come up with, again, solutions and, and talk to another. I mean, a lot of a lot of the work that they were doing, most especially 20 years ago, was relatively new. Um, and you know, how do how do I deal with this particular situation? What is needed? So it, it did. It, it just it of it born was a family, uh, and then and then PASA was created to essentially its mission is to support its member sanctuaries, and we call them member sanctuaries. So they're as I mentioned, 23 members currently, um, and they're located in 13 countries throughout Africa. These are predominantly um, primate sanctuaries. And by primate, um, some may deal um, and, and take in only monkeys and monkeys of such a variety of, of you know various species, but great apes as well. So chimps, bonobos, gorillas, um, all of which are found in Africa um, and mainly Western Africa, but also Central Africa. They have been created due to the fact that um, primates were in terrible various situations um, brought into captivity from a variety of different ways, whether it be the illegal trade or it be the pet trade, they find their way into captivity and they find um, they, they, there's a great need to rescue them. They're in terrible conditions. And that's where these sanctuaries were created. But again, many of them that were being created, they weren't entirely sure what it is they were meant to do. And this is where, you know, PASA's grown to be an organization they can rely on for um, helping both with training, with expertise, with support, and also along the lines of conservation, where um, a lot of the sanctuaries are working directly on co in conservation efforts. And um, that's something else that PASA is also involved with them. 
you know, most people's only encounter with a lot of the, the animals that you were just talking about, apes, gorillas, chimps, and then other primates, is a zoo. How would you describe the difference between the sanctuaries across those 13 countries that you're involved with versus their local zoo? I really think it, it's, it has to do with why sanctuaries exist. It's entirely different than why zoos exist and, and why one's created versus the other. The sanctuaries were created because people saw the need to help primates that were in distress due to being brought into captivity. Again, from the illegal trade, from the pet trade, whatever it may be, they were pulled out of the wild, taken from the wild, put into a captive situation, and were in a terrible situation, whether it be confiscated during a you know, law enforcement scenario or it was being kept as a pet tied to a tree, you know, as many chimpanzees are today, um, or in you know, a terrible cage, a tiny cage, and um, you know, just in incredibly horrible circumstances. And due to that, these incredible people today that, that you know, have founded and run these sanctuaries, they felt the need to create a safe space for these animals, spaces where they could live in as natural an environment as possible while still being cared for. Um, of course, everyone goes into it hoping there's a chance for reintroduction to the wild. Um, but if not, they are in a place where they can be cared for, they can rely on being cared for for the remainder of their life with welfare standards as high as possible and a natural environment that's as close to the environment they were taken from. It's interesting that, I mean, in doing some of the, the digging into your, your background, I was reading an article in which you said it's now to the point where it's a dire situation. We need to be addressing the source of the issue and what we're doing. That dire situation, I, I think, um, is... It's really one of those things I would I hope we can dig into a little bit because I just came back from Cameroon. I was there for a bit over a month at one of the Pasa sanctuaries, Mefu, which is run by Ape Action Africa. In the course of that roughly month, um, three new chimpanzees, babies, and a baby gorilla showed up. A really tiny infant baby gorilla showed up, um, and you know over the you know over the last you know couple of years even during the pandemic we just saw a continued increase in the number of rescues i think uh, the numbers from 2019 are nearly 240 primates were rescued which is a 22% increase over the year before and it just that dire situation it doesn't seem like we're getting to any kind of root change in all of that um and I know one of the reasons that you came into PASA um, was about change. Um, you know, your uh, your board chair, Michelle Stumps, she, she said on hiring you, she said she brings the playbook that will help PASA step into a larger role at a time when alliance models will be critical and lasting forging change. Change just seems everything I read about. Um, not only PASA, but, but the primate situation in the world in general. It's just everybody keeps using that word change. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, um, now you've been in the role for a short bit, at, and having been to Africa at representing PASA, how do you see change and what does it start to look like? And what do you think we need to be doing? 
All good questions. And, and it's the question of the day. Uh, it's, you know, the, the thing about the sanctuaries are they are located in the countries where this is actually happening. They are, they, they both have people working at the sanctuaries as well as they are in, in the midst of the communities, which are engaged in some cases, you know, in, in certainly either protecting the animals or, or possibly poaching from, from the forests. Uh, they're in a very unique uh, scenario, and, and it puts PASA in a unique situation as well, in, in both being a part of the communities, being a part of the countries and the cultures um, where protection can be at its greatest um, in order to, to really, I mean, these we're talking about endangered and critically endangered species where time is of the essence, and they are in a, in a dire situation. So it's also a matter of the the sanctuaries playing a part in conservation, which they already do. And I think this may be something that is, that is possibly missed as, as part of what sanctuaries do contribute towards. As we all know, when confiscations take place, government officials are then put in a position of what to do with these animals. And they're going to be far more likely to have the willingness to confiscate if there is somewhere for those animals to go so the burden does not be put on them as to what to do with the animals. And so sanctuaries play a very big role in law enforcement actually taking place and action, actually confiscation actually being followed through. And that is an element of conservation that I think, you know, the, the sanctuary's role in law enforcement. Um, and, and I can even reflect this back to my days of working with, with on, on dog protection um, and, and working in dog meat, which is one of the campaigns I did predominantly in Asia. And it was the same thing. If there was nowhere to send those dogs, they just let those dogs go through. If it was an illegal transport, they just let those dogs go through because they did not want to be burdened with what to do with these animals. So the sanctuaries having the willingness and the, not only the willingness, but then being they are the caring hands that these animals end up in, the safe spaces where these animals end up in. And what comes of them otherwise is the question. If there's confiscation and nowhere to send them or confiscation and, you know, it, it's just, I don't, you know, there's nowhere to send them. Where do they end up? Who knows? The other is that they are amidst, as I mentioned, they're, they're, they live among the communities and where they can be the hope for the future in, in really turning the tables for both protected areas as well as protected species within these areas. And habitat loss, we all know, is a, a major component of conservation. Um, without protected habitats where these animals currently live, to put them back into, how, there, how is an animal that's maybe confiscated and, and within the sanctuaries have a chance to go back safely? into the places where they were once taken from. So this is another element. These animals are kept in, um, you know, the primates are kept in wonderful condition. They live happy lives in as natural an environment as they possibly can while they're, you know, technically in an enclosure or in, you know, captivity. They live amongst, among other chimps, other gorillas, other, other, other kind um, in, in, in groups and, and families that, they are afforded as, as normal a life as they can be, but while living in captivity, that's what the sanctuaries provide. And of course, as I mentioned, the sanctuaries, all, any, ever, all of them are interested in seeing these animals be reintroduced to the wild 
And they are also the source of where these endangered and critically endangered animals could potentially be brought back to the, the wild as well. But unless there's wild spaces, protected wild spaces for them to go back into, you know, it, it's not going to be an option. There's two avenues um, that you brought up in there that I'd, I'd love to go down if you don't mind. One is, is sort of the protection piece, the ju- judiciary piece, the confiscation piece, and the other is the habitat piece. And the first one um, I'd like to talk about is, is the confiscation piece. Shortly before you arrived at PASA, PASA received a about a $750,000 grant to look at trafficking of, of chimpanzees. And the thing that I find fascinating about that grant is, is it came from the U.S. Department uh, State Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement. Well, it just goes to show where the illegal trade, the wildlife, the illegal wildlife trade is a criminal trade that's right up there with narcotics. I mean, it is, it is a global issue. Um, and most especially in places like West Africa, where the INL grant is dedicated, uh, you know, dedicated its focus through this grant that we received. It's 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 specifically to identify and to strengthen law enforcement and confiscations that take place in West Africa, but also geolocalization to determine where are these where are these main routes where these animals are coming from and ending up. And you know, we we. There's an idea of where the hubs are. There's an idea of where the routes are and where they're headed to. But without a better understanding of that, you can't get at the root cause. You can't, you can't intervene in the right locations. So that is what that, that is. And yes, it, is, it does seem and sound strange coming from um, the part of the U.S. government that it has. But it, it does go to show how severe um, and how high up this trade is in terms of a criminal trade that exists um, and also that it's it, it's 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 embedded, unfortunately, with with you know the, the the drug trade, with arms trade, and 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 all of the you know the the global trades that are you know a tremendous issue throughout the world. So is the wildlife, the illegal wildlife trade. Is it embedded in the? Is it part of the same trade, or is it just another branch of illegal trade? Because why would the U.S. government be interested in funding this? Is I guess what people might ask. Well, I guess the question is, are the same characters involved in all of this? And that's likely the case, um, is that there's, yes, you had the same, the same illegal routes being, being used, that the, you know, all, everything all in the same routes. And, and unfortunately, part of that is, is wildlife, whether it be bushmeat or it be live trade. Um, it's, it's about uh, the same criminals that are involved in, in um, whatever aspect of illegal activity it may be. And unfortunately, the wildlife trade is right up there with some of the worst. For those listening, if you check our first season, we did an interview with Ophir Drory, um, who runs the Eagle Network. And I'm sure you're familiar with mm-hmm. his his work and his team's work. And mm-hmm. um, he go, we went into a lot more detail about some of these trade networks. But um, yeah, it's it's interrupting those networks is uh, is a big part of that. And the sanctuaries, uh, unfortunately, I almost feel like it, it's funny, the conversations I've had over the last six, eight weeks being, uh, being in Cameroon, it, it, the conversations, I almost felt like I was talking to a victim when I was talking to, it was Rachel Hogan, who's the director at, uh, at for Ape Action Africa. And at times I felt like I was talking to a victim of all this. It's like they 
this is going on. And then boom, the last thing is this baby gets dumped in their lap. And as, as cute as they may seem on social media um, and to, to have a baby chimp or a baby girlish, you know, on the Facebook pages and all that, we're, we're looking at something pretty horrible um, that's been, that's happening both to that species and to the environment. And, uh, and then this animal shows up in it for the next 40 or 50 years. It's the sanctuary's problem, <laughs> which brings up a question. This is a nightmare funding issue. If, if we really, for PASA, we really get to the, the core of it, PASA and its members. It's like, you know, everybody wants to, to help support a new baby, whatever. Um, but you're looking at 40, 50 years, they're going to become old, they're going to become geriatrics, just funding them for all that time. That's, you know, that is a, an ongoing issue. Um, it never mind, as you, as you mentioned before, that, that in some cases, the confiscations are increasing. Um, and so more and more animals, um, you know, there is a potential upside to the confiscations increasing. And it could be in places like the, you know, the, the DRC, where government is, are doing more confiscations than they ever have before, which, uh, of course, equates to more animals being, being brought to the sanctuaries. But it also means more law enforcement activity can also be a, a deterrent, especially when it leads to prosecution of those people. So when, when people realize they can actually really get into trouble and they can lead to jail time and it can lead to you know, tremendous fees beyond just the confiscation of the animals they've taken out of the wild, you know, that in and of itself can be a huge deterrent to the trade and to those people continuing to do that illegal activity. But yes, the sanctuaries end up with these animals and, and, and for their care for a lifetime, which is why the sanctuaries themselves are as involved with conservation efforts as you know, some of the, the, the big names that you've mentioned before. You know, I mean, it, PASA, as well as our members' sanctuaries, are because they are in the countries where this is happening and because they are the recipients of what comes you know, from these confiscations, from these law enforcement activity. They are also the ones who realize more than anyone else that there needs to be protected spaces. There needs to be protected land, truly protected land, habitat for these animals to potentially have a, have a future or have an opportunity to be reintroduced at some point in time back into the wild. But when that's not possible, because there isn't a protected space for them to go into, even if they're in locations where people would say, well, they're out in the forest and they're out in the, you know, the middle of nowhere. But that middle of nowhere is where those animals were taken in the first place. So putting them back into a space that, you know, it's just a cycle of them going back into a place where they're not safe. Um, something about these sanctuaries that, you know, people who've, who've been there, such as yourself, and, and, and knowing the people that, that are part of these sanctuaries running them, and they are the, the everyday caretakers of these incredible species that you know many of us only know from you know maybe from a zoo or from photos and magazines or you know they they are they are the caretakers from the baby gorilla that you mentioned that is a, a creature that will be with that sanctuary for its lifetime for the baby's lifetime and always will be in a safe space because of it they'll be in a safe space they'll be well cared for they'll live in as natural an environment as they as they as they possibly can you know afford they can they will live amongst their own species in group settings. So they will have the best life they possibly can. And the sanctuary affords that for them. 
And that is something that is also, I think, forgotten among, you know, at the time of confiscation is these animals end up in sanctuaries that will take, you know, top-notch care of these species for their lifetime. But all of us hope that there's a chance for them to be reintroduced to the wild. That's what everyone hopes. I mean, every sanctuary knows that that is that is the way it should be. It should, you know, it should that they have an opportunity to go back. But it's not possible for them to go back into a space that's not protected, that's not safe for them. They, they take them in with them being in their care and being their responsibility. And that will be for their lifetime unless there is somewhere for them to go that is equally safe. Disease. I mean, disease is another factor. When these animals go through the traumatic experiences they do, and then they end up being taken from the wild and end up in a sanctuary, disease is another factor. I mean, many of them are now exposed to all sorts of diseases that wild chimps and gorillas and bonobos are not. And that's another factor that always has to be considered with reintroduction is, is, is what possible diseases are we inadvertently exposing to the wild populations that do still exist. And these are all things that sanctuaries take very seriously um, in, in, in taking in and, and caring for um, the various, various primates that they do. But you're right, the funding is unbelievable that it will be, is required for even the lifetime care of, of one chimp. Um, and that's something that's not factored into uh, these confiscations, which PASA is trying to create a voice for our members in, in making that you know, clear that really highlighting how sanctuaries play a part in conservation. You know, our original conversation back a few months ago when we were on the phone, and you were talking about the fact that sanctuaries need to be more involved as full stakeholders um, in the conservation conversation. 20 years ago when PASA started, I don't think that was part of the conversation. And I think if, you know, we're talking about those changes now, um, that to me is maybe one of the core pieces right there. Well, PASA's had to evolve um, over time um, with the evolving changes in the world. I mean, with, with the primate species dwindling um, with every year passing, um, you know, more and more and, and habitat loss, you know, that's also dwindling um, and the pressures that are on, on these various endangered and critically endangered species. Um, it's, it's required for PASA and our, our member sanctuaries to, to change as needed to be in the, the strongest position we can be to be impactful and, and try to get at the, you know, try to be involved at the, as much as possible at the root of the, the cause of this, because without slowing the, the trade, without stopping the flow, um, and, maintaining the animals that are currently in the wild and, and preventing them from ever coming out of the wild. Um, this will be an ongoing, an ongoing flow, an ongoing uh, cycle. And so we're, you know, we, we as PASA, as, as, as well as our, our member sanctuaries, are having to evolve with those needed changes. And, and as you mentioned, this being a stakeholder, yes, I mean, the sanctuaries exist Maybe they were created to to care for animals coming out of the trade or animals that have been taken and and need care. But they are also they are stakeholders who are very important stakeholders in conservation in the countries where where all of this is actually taking place. Do you see them 
being brought to that conservation conversation table uh, or is that something that's still we're still struggling to get that to happen because you know when when i move throughout these countries it hasn't typically you haven't seen pasa and you haven't seen the sanctuaries um you know you see the big in the the typical big ngos um and and some others and then you see a few government agencies at those conversations and then of course there seems like there's always millions of dollars and lots of wonderful proclamations made and and agreements signed and then nothing really changes and the sanctuaries continue to fill up with babies um, so i guess how how do you see pasa's role at that table how do how do you again going back to that word change how how does pasa's role at that conservation conversation table change that conversation we're going to take a short break in our conversation with Kelly O'Meara, and we'll be back in a few minutes to explore how PASA's emerging role in the conservation conversation is making a change. But first, I'd like to check in with our assistant producer, Demelza Bond. Hi, Demelza. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Good, good, good. What has been going on on social media and on the website? Okay, so um, I think some of you probably remember that last week we mentioned we had a logo naming competition for our new little orangutan logo. Um, I'm not going to read them all out. We've had quite a few entries, but the first one, which we really loved, was from Shalyn Sileski, and it was Tumbili. Do you know what that means, Jerry? Tumbili, uh, Swahili. Yeah, that's uh, Swahili for ape. That's Very pretty clever. Good. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so thank you for that, Sharon. Sharon also said on Facebook that she can't wait for the new season. She said it's one of her favourite podcasts. So I just want to say I hope you're enjoying it, Sharon. That's awesome. Have we heard from anybody else? Indeed, yes. So we've had the reviews piling in and I want to get right in and read one out from Mel Edwards. Now, it's a very long review, so I'm going to have to cut this down. But Mel says that the podcast could not have come at a better time for her personally. She said she's had a, she used to study primates as a hobby and she's had a long break from that. But this has reignited her passion. She says she's learned so much about primates and their conservation and all the other amazing topics. And it's great to learn about all the different viewpoints. She says she now plans to study primatology and get more proactive um, in helping primates and their environments. Wow. No, that's fantastic. Thank you, Mel. And, and that is exactly what we have been trying to accomplish with both the Talking Apes podcast and with our Apes Like Us YouTube channel is to um, engage people in what's happening with apes on this planet. No, that's it. Every single day, me and Jerry have to sit down and ask ourselves why are we here and why are we doing this job? And it's to raise awareness of the issues facing apes and to try and get people involved in these causes. So thank you so much for that, Mel. Again, you know, she's she's such an active member of our community and she's really gone out of her way to share all of our posts and to help us grow. So 
thank you Mel for the rest of you if you do want to send in a comment or leave a review you can do so at our website go to talkingapes.org or our Instagram is talkingapes underscore podcast or you can find us on Facebook Talking Apes Podcast just give us a search send us a message or leave us a comment and I will get back to you thanks guys Thank you so much, Demelza. And now let's get back to my conversation with Kelly O'Meara. How does Haas's role at that conservation conversation table change that conversation? Well, well again, what PASA is, is we are, we are a representative, a voice for are member sanctuaries that exist in these countries. And that's what makes both PASA, and that's what makes PASA unique. Um, and that is what PASA is going out to, to voice as much as possible on behalf of our member our member sanctuaries. Part of that is being a part of CITES meetings, being a part of these, you know, these, these much higher level meetings. Um, the IUCN meeting, which just took place, you know, the protected areas in Africa, um, the, the Congress that just took place, that was in Rwanda. We have a, a member of our team now, Iris Ho, who's also formerly from Humane Society International and has a, a extensive wildlife background. Um, she is on board in our team and she is, is doing just that. She's going out to these, you know, to these various high-level meetings, high-level political and government meetings, and, and speaking on behalf of PASA, but, but most especially on behalf of our member sanctuaries that exist in these, you know, in 13 countries throughout the African um, continent. And that is, that is something that I think has been overlooked by some of the, the larger um, wildlife conservation organizations that exist both throughout the United States and Europe. And we're hoping that the more they see and hear about PASA and the more they understand how, how our member organizations and sanctuaries exist on the ground and play a part in conservation and should be a stakeholder, we're hoping we see a change in, in the near future and how, um, how they're perceived and how, how in, in bringing PASA to the table to be a player um, and a stakeholder in, in this discussion. I think one of the places that um, I have seen over the last year, and I've mostly been traveling in, in sort of West Congo Basin and West Africa, different locations, and one of the things that's interesting to me about the sanctuaries is they have very large staffs, most of them, of caretakers and veterinarians, mm-hmm. and most of those staffs are local. And so there's, mm-hmm. unlike most conservation and and conservation projects, and most of those are driven financially and administratively from the West, the, the sanctuaries have this, I'll call it a personal connection to what's going on on the ground that is so different than most conservation groups. They Conservation groups come in and they may hire a couple of local people that they work with, mm-hmm. but the sanctuaries have a large number of, of people that are actually working every day at the sanctuary. They have families that live outside the sanctuary um, in association. They go to the local markets. They're buying in the local stores. They hear about what's happening. I mean, in some cases, they may even walk through bush meat markets and, and things like that um, on their days off. And that gives, it just feels like it gives the sanctuaries a, a very different perspective to bring to that conservation table than traditional conservation groups. 
they can they they can provide potentially provide information that is truly not known in these greater discussions that are taking place between government and and larger entities larger conservation organizations that are that are brought in and as you say you know may hire a couple of locals but simply don't have the same firsthand uh, information and knowledge that these sanctuaries are are both hearing, gaining, and a part of every day um, in the work that they're doing in in country. I see that as a, a growing role for the sanctuaries, and and um, yeah, there's a, a firsthand knowledge of a of a situation which I can't really talk about, but um, it was where it it took knowing people in those communities on the ground because the the at a government level people weren't talking, playing their official roles yeah. and wouldn't get involved. Mm-hmm. And it took a lot of just going to people's mm-hmm. porches and sitting on the porch and having a conversation with people to kind of break through all of that and get things done on a local level and something that the sanctuaries are uniquely positioned to do. So supporting that. And then again, how do we get the financial support to do? Because that becomes a whole nother job that they're doing. Yes, it absolutely is. And, and unfortunately, I think that that is, that is something um, that conservation, many of the bigger conservation groups say, well, they're, they're just caretakers of the animals. Um, and that's, that's their job. And that's their role. Um, and so everything else that they're involved in, and every, you know, that unique position that a sanctuary can play in that conversation about conservation, um, being a true stakeholder around the table is forgotten or is overlooked because they're just the primate caretaker. Um, and that is something that PASA, I can tell you, is going out in, in every way possible to, to change um, and to just you know highlight and um, entail as much as possible along the lines of what you just did, which is how can the sanctuary both benefit and enhance the conversation that is taking place, the, the strate- you know, strategies that are being developed in combating the illegal wildlife trade. Why wouldn't you bring a, an entity that exists in country that is the recipient of what comes out of the wild and, and they actually are not only hearing, seeing and feeling it firsthand, but they are also amidst the communities that are the eyes and ears on the ground every day. Um, it, it just to me, it, it seems such a such a missed opportunity at learning very quickly about the true situation um, on the ground and how how maybe there is a, a different way to approach this or a better way to approach this. Um, and that understanding it from their perspective, having having that voice at the table can be invaluable. Mm. I want to shift just a little bit from that, but it's it's tangential to that, really. And that is a lot of the sanctuary directors will say, you know, the bigger, our biggest goal is, you know, to try to keep the wild from disappearing, because then that's one way of preventing these animals from showing up. And there's some interesting numbers that have come out in the last year. Um, One of them is with the current trajectory, the data shows us that 84 to 95% of chimpanzee and gorilla habitat will be lost within 30 years. And I think what's alarming about that to me is that, you know, we have a real world precedent for that. In the last 30 years in Borneo, um, over half of the orangutan habitat has disappeared. And, and, 
that equates to about 150,000 animals have disappeared as well. Um, and the causes are exactly the same. It's industrial agriculture, um, like palm oil, it's and slash and burn farming. It's, you know, uh, logging and mining dams in some cases. So it's destroying that. And that then in turn leads to, as we, you know, both know to, to bushmeat poaching and, and in turn babies ending up in sanctuaries. So I guess one of the, one of the things is I'd love to hear your thoughts on for someone sitting in the U S Europe, Australia, Japan, wherever, this sounds like a problem half a world away. It, it doesn't sound like a local problem. And I know as a storyteller, one of my challenges is in doing films is how do you, how do you make that story feel local? And, you know, one of, one of the, on our, our sister uh, kind of outreach channel, uh, Apes Like Us on YouTube, one of the most popular stories we did involves a lot of the pasta sanctuaries and it's, uh, it's baby ape forest school. And which, you know, we, we talk about what these little things have to, these little creatures have to learn because they don't have their moms and, and the caretakers that have to teach them how to be chimps, teach them how to be gorillas, orangutans, whatever. And, you know, we now have, I don't know, it's, a, it's like six, 700,000 views on that particular program. And one of the goals there was to make this feel like school that your kids go to. So it became local. How how do we do that? How does PASA go about making these these issues, these challenges, feel like local challenges to somebody sitting half a world away? Well, I think just the familiarity of if you do watch a chimp or a gorilla or a bonobo or an orangutan in their in their everyday behavior, especially amongst their you know in, amongst their their young, um, you note how human they are, how human like they are, and I think um, I think any human in, in in visually seeing these animals in in their wild spaces, um, but even at the sanctuaries or even I mean even at a zoo, you may see how they are how they're so similar to us. And that certainly is the case. That's probably why, you know, I mean, granted, you know, baby gorillas and baby chimps are absolutely adorable and play with one another, just like human kids do. They, 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 it's, it's exactly the same as watching a nursery school of, of human children. Um, and unfortunately their adorable nature is why, they also end up in captivity and being taken from the wild is they, they end up in the pit trade because they're just that adorable. But it's, you know, I think that, I think their similarity in, in so many ways to humans is, you know, maybe it doesn't make it local, but it makes it familiar. It makes it familiar to people in that these are our closest relatives that exist in the wild. And no matter where you are on the planet, they live in a certain spot on the planet. And when that habitat is taken away or we are poaching them to, you know, into, ex you know, extinction that once they're gone, they're gone. And, and it's, it's a, it's a story we've heard before of other species and those species no longer exist on the planet. And it's a, it's a story that we should be learning from 
that we should be realizing we can do something about this. Um, and we should do something about this. It, it's, this is, these are, again, our closest relatives. And as humans, we have, we have the ability to intervene and, and really do something to try and stop this trade so that it, so that the animals that are left, the chimps and the bonobos and the gorillas that are left in the wild can remain in the wild. But again, in order to do that, it's, it's not just about saving the species. It's also about saving their habitats and, and creating protective spaces where they can live in the wild and not, and not be constantly pressured um, in, 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 as they are right now. So I, I, I don't, you know, in, in terms of it being local, it's, it can't be because it, it's, it exists in one place. And that's the thing. It exists in one place on, you know, there, there are certain places on the planet where they still exist. And as we all know, too, they used to exist in much broader ranges. And now it's, it's been shrunken down into a smaller space on the planet. And it's, you know, it's our jobs as humans to, to try and at least save the spaces that they that they still exist. And, 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 you know, that, you know, it's, it's an ever growing population of humans and an ever dwindling population of everything else. Um, and unfortunately primates are, are, you know, among that, but at a, at a much faster rate, unfortunately, than, than some other um, species that exist on earth. So it's the time is of the essence when it comes to saving primates and most especially our, our great ape relatives. Coming from the Humane Society, especially working in dog with dogs around the planet, it just seems like everybody, you know, so many people have a dog. You know, <laughs> I, I, I could I can look out my studio window and I see you know twenty different people every morning walking their dogs in, in my neighborhood, mm-hmm. and so making that feel like a local personal issue. What I guess, what did you learn from that that we might be able to apply to this? Because I struggle with this question. It's like it, it is a challenge. I mean, obviously, with with dogs, you're exactly right. I mean, most people in the world can relate to a dog, whether you know dogs are companions, pretty much throughout the whole world. So you're you're correct in that. And whether they be a you know a, a true companion in our home, living with us, or living, you know, living. Um, as a you know, guard dog in the property and, and our community dog outside, you know, living on the street with several other dogs and protecting neighborhoods to that respect. It is easy to, to relate humans to dogs because of that familiarity of, of, of dogs and, and the role they play with humans. And, and it's, I, you know, it's not just, it's not just great apes, not just primates. It's any, it's, it's wildlife, right? In general, how, how do you relate wildlife to, to people's everyday, to, to you know, and, and put it on the radar of the everyday human. Um, you know, I'll give an example, and, and this is Takogama, who I believe you know you've been to and, and know well. You know, the way that they are trying to relate their, you know, the Sierra Leoneans to, you know, what is what is a chimp, you know, and and what what part does the chimp play here in our country? And so they have made the chimp. The chimp is recognized today as the national animal, and it's been designated as the national animal. And then they do a series. They have a, a, a now they're having yearly campaigns starting this year onward, where there's a celebration of that in various different ways. But it's also taking place throughout the country. So it takes place in the capital, but then it goes onward throughout the whole country. And and 
Those campaigns can involve something like a, you know, a, a parade, you know, and, and chimpanzees are at the, at the, the forefront of that. You know, there's chimpanzee, you know, all sorts of um, fun things that are uh, handed out to people. There's also a puppet show, you know, where it shows what a chimp, you know, chimpanzees and that sort of thing. Or it's, you know, it's involving children, it's involving fun, and it's involving education about what is a chimpanzee? What value does does the chimpanzee bring to this country? Um, and and I think they've done an excellent job. They created something called Chimp Week, which was all about chimps over the course of a week. It was various different fun activities related to it. So not only are people recognizing what is a chimp, they're also hearing, oh, the chimp is actually, it's our national animal. You know, that's exciting. And then also it's, well, this whole thing has been associated with fun, fun community activities. And so the learning has been through fun activities that in turn, we hope will benefit the chimps. And there's, and there is, you know, they're, they're doing, they're doing their homework to, to determine, you know, what is the most impactful way to, to get this message across, to make people understand, to make people even know what a chimpanzee is, to your point. Um, and, and, you know, it may just be that, that, you know, this is what has to happen. It, it has to be where the chimpanzee is celebrated. Gorillas are celebrated, you know, countries like Uganda and Rwanda, you pretty much can't go to those countries unless you're going to go see the gorillas. It's brilliant. I mean, gorillas are an incredible, um, part of their ecotourism. It's, it's a, it's a massive driver of people going there. It's a massive driver of people understanding, um, how, you know, gorillas value of being in the wild, staying in the wild, staying protected in the wild. There's a lot of fantastic models out there that I think many of the countries in Africa can be utilizing to protect, but it also has to be, I think, a global effort in helping them to do that, helping them to, to what are these, what, you know, what are the ways that we can relate the rest of the planet to these incredible species that exist only in one part of the planet and making people understand, you know, this is a chimpanzee, this is a gorilla, this is a bonobo, and this is the value that they have in staying in the wild. Um, we all know that if ecotourism increases, you know, and, and Uganda and Rwanda have it down, have it down pat. They, they, they've, you know, it, it's, there is no way to exit either of those two countries without knowing what a gorilla is. It's absolutely true. Yeah. And, and they've put a high value. I mean, it's $1,500 oh. for an hour to see gorillas in Rwanda. <laughs> yes. And it's, you know, yeah. it's about half that in Uganda, but yes, um, it's several hundred dollars to see chimpanzees. So there's, yes. a, there's a serious economic value. I, I guess, Maybe that's what it takes looking at the Sierra Leonean model with Takagama and, and what Rwanda and Uganda have done. Maybe we just need to get these primates declared national animals in all the rest of those yes. those 13 countries. That's, that easy feat, that's just what we have to do. But yes, it highlights them, it celebrates them, it, it gives them value um, of existing in the wild where they should be. Yeah. I, I want to thank you for uh, for being with us today and taking the time to do this. I know that you're like probably got a crazy schedule just coming back from Africa and all the other stuff that's going on there. But it's really been a pleasure um, to talk to you about all of this. And I, I hope that over the over the season and the next year or something, we can get you back on and about what's going on. I'd love to hear more about what you guys are doing with this grant 
from everything I know, it looks like PASA is going to have to be the one who really leads a lot of this. Well, agreed. And PASA is ready for it. We're, we're, we're eager to be um, the leaders in that and, um, and, you know, create what is needed to, to, to really um, hone in on that and have, you know, a, a true, a true effort such as, you know, we're, we have with, with the, the first INL grant from, from, you know, for West Africa. Yeah, we're prepared. You guys have a wonderful newsletter. If people want to sign up for the newsletter, we'll put some links in in the podcast as well. But they can find everything about PASA at what? Yeah, at the web PASA.org. PASA.org. P-A-S-A.org. Yes. And I would really encourage them to sign up for your newsletter because it's really informative and keeps people abreast of what you guys and all the sanctuaries are doing. So, yeah, check that out. Kelly, again, thank you so much for taking the time and, and, and being with us on Talking Apes. This has been really, really fun and, and fun to catch up again. Once again, I'd like to thank Kelly O'Meara for sharing her passion for primates and her thoughts on the future of primate conservation through the eyes of PASA. You've been listening to Talking Apes. For each episode, we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people and conservationists from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our new website at talkingapes.org. That's talkingapes, one word, dot O-R-G. Or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can email us at media at talkingapes.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes assistant producer, Demel Zaban, for all of her work helping create another wonderful podcast. And finally, thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by the growing number of listeners like you. Please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation via the link on our new website. For all those who work tirelessly every day to protect and save apes and their forest homes, I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening to Talking Apes.